podcast is from a London Business School event with Mark Rowley, former UK counter-terrorism chief, in conversation with Richard Heitner, adjunct professor of marketing at London Business School. For the first time since his retirement from policing, Mark reflects on what it takes to lead in the toughest of contexts, from personal resilience to the application of organisational purpose in action. Well, good evening and welcome to London Business School. It's uh, brilliant that you are here. So it's important that I say I'm Richard, this is Mark. Uh, why? Because if the security of London had been in my hands in the last four or five years, uh, you might be sleeping somewhat less easy. Over 31 years of service, Mark has risen and rose through the ranks from basically being a beat constable in the Midlands, the West Mids, to assistant commissioner for the Metropolitan Police at the same time as being the country's UK lead on counter-terrorism. In his specialist operations and CT role, the CT role probably being, by most observers reckoning, the toughest role in UK policing, he's worked with a plethora of amazing people, two Met commissioners, a raft of chief constables, and, of course, critical to developing and fostering a better relationship with MI5 and the other intelligence partners. He's built and did build a counter-terrorism force that is the envy of the world. And just to put that in context, and Mark will talk more about it, but his kind of leadership of UK policing efforts to counter and mitigate the threat from Daesh as well as from other terrorist groups and violent extremist threats. During his tenure, they stopped successfully 23 attacks since the murder of Lee Rigby uh, in 2013 and actually 10 since March 2017. He may be one of the very few people about whom the Prime Minister, the former Home Sec Amber Rudd and Sadiq Khan agree. Because uh, when he stepped down, I'm not sure, the PM talked about his dedication to protecting police, public safety, tackling the evils of terrorism uh, throughout his career, as well as, of course, heading up counter-terrorism and an iconic example of the professionalism of our police forces. Amber Rudd described him as someone who leads from the front, having won the admiration and respect of both colleagues and peers. And Sadiq Khan talked of his skill, tenacity and dedication, qualities he'd seen time and time again during their work together. A Midlands Grammar School boy went to Cambridge and in 2001 awarded the Queen's Police Medal for Distinguished Service. He's looking incredibly trim. He's just back from a 49-day trip to Nepal, which he describes as his partial midlife crisis trip, but I think had more benefits than that. We're really, really lucky to have a leader as distinguished as this at London Business School, and uh, I would welcome to the floor the great Mark Rowley. Thank you, Richard, for that overstated, um, but very kind, uh, very kind introduction. So here I am, post a policing career, and finding my way in the, in, in, in the real world. And one of the things that sort of struck me as I was wandering around Nepal was just reflections on leadership and reflections and whether there's something, some value in what I've seen. So tonight is a, a reflective piece, particularly centering on crisis leadership and sort of the leadership lessons connected with it. From my perspective, it's a personal reflection. If it has any research value at all, it's empirical. It's, not, it's no more than that. So please take it in the spirit, uh, spirit it's intended. So, Richard described um, many of my roles, and I suppose the last year in my career was, in some ways, the best year in decades for counterterrorism policing, MI5, in the sense that we disrupted 
We stopped 10 Islamist attacks and four extreme right-wing attacks. But of course, in other ways, it was the worst because there were five attacks. Four fatal, the one at Parsons Green, not fatal. And I was stood outside Scotland Yard too often updating the public and, uh, and trying to help lead the national, national response. So, as I sort of move on from policing to various things, sort of many friends in different sectors have, have sort of asked me to say, what sort of reflecting on the leadership challenges that come from that? And that's what I'm going to give my first stab at tonight. And I'm sure that'll improve my thinking and discover whether it's got any value at all or, or not. So I'm, I'm no longer a police officer. I'm not working in national security. So it isn't a security briefing. So tonight, simply thoughts on a 31-year empirical study. So I'll, start, I'll do two things. I'm going to tell a story, just a bit of me into policing, and then the challenges of leadership. And then after that, reflect on what the lessons I draw from that that may have some cross-sector value. So I joined police straight from university, as, as Richard said. Something instinctive about the mission of policing, about protecting communities and about helping people thrive, grabbed me when I was a teenager. I went to Cambridge and did sums because I was good at them, and then I joined the police, which is what I'd always intended to do. I worked hard over the years to make sure I had a sort of broad basis for my professional expertise, even as I realised I sort of was attracted to leadership positions. I moved between community policing roles. I, did, I worked for a national agency doing organised crime work that was a precursor of National Crime Agency. I worked in West Midlands, finished in Surrey for quite a long period, was Chief Constable of Surrey for four years, and then came to the Metropolitan Police after the challenges of the riots and took on some responsibilities there about sorting out public order and, and things there, and then four years ago moved into taking the National League for Counterterrorism. I don't have the best timing in the world, so it was my second day in 2014 that al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, declared the caliphate. I thought that was rather harsh to do it on day two. I, I sort of... <laughs> I thought, well, it could have given me, given me a week to read myself in. Might have been, uh, might have been kinder. Um, but anyway, so it, you, had a, you had a sense that this was going to be a... The heat of the changing threat had already started developing. Or seriously, you had a sense this was going to, be, going to be challenging. And the threat changed dramatically. And this is important in terms of the leadership challenges rather than the, the threat issues. I'll quote Andrew. So Andrew Parker, head of MI5. It's he and I regularly brief sort of PM and Home Secretary on what was going on. He described it sort of saying, there's more of it. It's moving faster and it's harder to detect. So more of it, I've already given an indication of some of the numbers and in my tenure policing ended up doubling the number of people we arrested at the end of those four years at the start in terms of, keeping the, sort of keep, trying to keep the lid on plots. But also moving faster. So the changing method where you just inspire people and they can do an attack by hiring a car or buying a knife makes it much more accessible and simple than the previous methodologies. And then harder to detect, facing a world where despite all the benefits of social media and the sort of digital world we operate in, one of the disbenefits, it's given lots of encrypted means that are beyond the reach of the state where dangerous people can um, plot in private. So any sector, that's quite a transformational challenge, more of it and a more difficult job to do. So what are the challenges for my leadership team? So at the core of it, of course, you've got the sort of 24-7, 365 responsibility, tightly alongside MI5, to protect the public, making arrests, disrupting plots, etc. But the challenge was the pace and scale and difficulty of it meant that even if politicians gave us infinite amounts of money, and they never do that, do they? But even if they'd given us infinite amounts of money, and to be fair to them, they most of the time, well, all the time gave us most of what we asked for, the reality was there's a limit to how, much you, how fast you can grow specialist capability in any organisation. Um, I'm sure that, that bit's true for any of you. So money was a limiting factor to a degree, but less so than just your ability to grow. So transformation becomes 
existential because it is the only way, um, the only way to keep pace. And so the question in my mind a lot of time was, how on earth do you transform when the machine is running so hot? How do you find the capacity and the willpower um, to do that? When it would be easier, far easier to get narrower and narrower in your focus and say, well, I know there's lots of other important things to do. We need to think about the future of this and the future of that, but actually, let's just focus on the core job of stopping all these plots, and hopefully at some point in the future we'll have more time to think, to, to think about strategy and change and, and such stuff. I, I was determined that that wasn't the case. I've always seen my role as, if you're the most senior person, particularly in an organisation where the sort of operations you're dealing with, there are so many life and death decisions and so much complexity, much of that decision-making comes up to the highest level. So you've got your senior team are drawn into tactical decisions. They're tactical decisions because they are of such import for the country. But that, again, reduces your senior leadership capacity to look forward. And so the four things that I was determining we were doing, I thought my, my view was my role was if I'm not making sure we're, we've got at least one eye on the horizon, uh, if I'm not making sure we do that, then we'll all just be looking in front, of our, in front of our toes. So the four things. First, for me, was just investing in the leadership team. I know that might sound trivial and cheesy, but it's hard to do at all times. It's hard to do in any pressured organisation, and most of you probably work in that. Um, I wanted to build a collegiate, mutually supportive team with a deep shared understanding of each other. Running away way days and strategy days and doing all that sort of stuff can seem incongruous when you're wrestling with the sort of pressures and tempo that we were wrestling with. But for me, it was critical, with the context moving faster than ever, that we had to look into the future. Second, for me, was about operational focus. So my view was it mustn't become too narrow. Do you start cutting away other areas of activity because this one strand of work is so dominating? either dangerous threat. The values of British policing are heavily rooted in prevention. If you go back to the sort of formation of the Metropolitan Police in 1829 and things that Peel said and the first commissioners of the Met, um, Rowan and Main, they came up with nine principles of policing, which are some of the best things written on policing ever, which is slightly sad reflection on the rest of us, isn't it, that in 1829 they got it right and we haven't done as well as them. But elegantly simple and, and very good to look at. The first one, they said, talking about the role of policing, the role of policing is to prevent crime and disorder as an alternative to their repression by military force and severity of legal punishment. That's fundamentally different to the model on the continent. If you think a lot of continental policing came out of a paramilitary history that came out of post-revolution suppression of the masses, British policing started community bottom-up, and that was their statement that even though we're going from parish constables to organising into police forces, prevention not enforcement is the most important thing. So that's in our culture and values, and I think it's one of the proudest things with policing. The challenge is, how do you find the time for prevention when enforcement is, is the most um, pressing issue? For me, it was critical. We carved out time to do it. We, we kept capacity in it. We, we didn't strip it out for two reasons. One, if that's our values and that's what we stand for, then we should be able to stick to it and hold our nerve, even at the most difficult times. And secondly, there's the practical thing, if you can slow down or reduce the supply of next, next year's terrorists, then that's not a bad idea, rather than just focusing on waiting till everyone gets to be very dangerous and putting them in prison. If you can stop them on that curve, that seems to be sensible as well. But it's a hard thing to do, isn't it, when it's tempting to put all the operational activity in one basket. Third, another thing that's hard to do when you're at risk of hunkering down, transparency and engagement. I took the view that engagement with stakeholders and the public needed to grow under pressure, not reduce. 
this was a more complex and challenging problem. Everyone needs to be aware of it. Lots of people, everyone can help with it. But most important, why wouldn't you socialise some of the challenges you're facing when the public, potential public impact is great? And I think that was a big factor in helping us through last year, that it had been well socialised in advance. It also meant, rather than just the long-established security briefings of the Prime Minister and, and Home Secretary, we were doing far more briefings to get political support as well. Fourth, and of course, the, the obvious one is the constant review of readiness for potential attacks. So how often do organisations keep pushing off the agenda, sort of risk management, contingency planning, because today's operational problems are the most important? And we can all do that. And I think it's challenging, isn't it, when you're, you would say your day job is to make sure these things don't happen, but actually we're going to invest more effort in being ready for if it does happen. That's quite a, a big stretch. The things that we did, I've got a, sort of a, a long list of things we did over the four or five years to strengthen the already good arrangements that my predecessors had left in place. So we learned from overseas attacks. So we learned from attacks in Fran France about actually the stretch when the people went on the run after uh, the Charlie Hebdo attack. And for two days, they were trying to hunt them down before then. There'd been sieges in a supermarket, you might remember. And national armed policing capability. We're proudly a largely an armed force. We realised we wanted some contingency capacity and we came up with an arrangement where the military could help us um, under our command in those situations. Several attacks we saw how ISIS were trying to exploit the media during a hostage. We saw it in Australia and France. We had the media in, did tabletops, we worked together. How would, how would they do their job as a free press and how would we do our job without them tripping up our ability to protect the public? You take tense conversations when you come through the door to sensible agreements because nobody wants to put anybody at risk. We maximised our own capacity on the back of the Bataclan attacks. We, we looked at our communications approach. We realised we were out of date and slow and the pace that these attacks were generating around the world. And we completely changed the way we were going to do that. And our director of communications was absolutely clear that I needed to be out sort of in front of the yard in sort of two or three hours. Historically, the police approach had been, we'll wait sort of six, eight, 10, 12 hours until we know a lot more. But actually, even when you don't know very much early on, you have to find a way to start explaining. This is where we are, this is what we're doing, this is what we know, what we don't know, and, and, and finding a way and practising and being ready for do, doing that. And many, other, many, many other things we did. And we tested and tested and tested until we were blue in the face. And so my leadership team, we all knew if something happened, and we're all hoping it wouldn't, we knew exactly what we were going to do straight away. So we were, we were match fit for a match that we hadn't previously fought and hoped we would never have to. So I've sort of just tried to give a quick count through the personal stories. You've got this heat of pressure operationally, and I saw it as my challenge and the senior leadership's challenge to do everything possible not to narrow, to spend time on the quality of the leadership team, time on the values of the organisation, not narrow the operational mission, and put the time into seeing all those risks and issues and ticking them off and doing everything sensible and practically we could do to do them. To do those alongside the sort of heat of the daily operational pressures. So I've said my thinking's empirical, so I've tried to draw some lessons and thinking out of that. As I've tried to marshal my reflections, I've looked around literature on crisis management and sort of, so I can't claim my research is exhaustive or a, if I was to submit it as a um, literature review for a, an essay here, I, I think I'd be sent back to do it again. But anyway, I've done a, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of, uh, a lot of reflecting. And I, if I'm honest, I, sort of, I didn't find it very helpful, most of it. There's an awful lot of one-dimensional stuff out there where somebody says that, the answer to crisis management is crisis communications. That tends to be said by people in the communications industry. Funny that. The answer to crisis management is contingency planning. That tends to be sold by people in the contingency planning business. It's, there's a lot of narrow solutions, and 
I don't think that's what's required. I think breadth and depth is where crisis management comes from, not a sort of in, event, in, in time of emergency break glass type solution. So I've got six, six headline reflections, which I'll list in a moment. I was trying to find a sort of phrase to describe them. The best I could come up with was 364 plus one crisis management, by which I mean, I think your strength in a crisis is more dependent on your strength the other 364 days of the year than it is about what you have in the cupboard for that day. I'm not saying you don't need to plan for it, but it's as much about how you do the day job. It requires this because crises expose, I think, the heart and soul of organisations like nothing else. There's a lot of articles on recent crises, and we might discuss some of them, where saying, oh, well, the chief exec should have done that differently, or they handled that crisis badly. I often think that's missing the point. What the crisis is about is it's, it's, put, it's shone a light into the centre of the organisation. In these situations, you have nowhere to hide. The organisation is naked. You're sort of, you've been exposed root and branch, your strengths and weaknesses. In fact, psychologists use the phrase, under stress we regress. And I think there's some resonance of that with what you see with organisations as well. So, whilst there are some special considerations, I think it's about the breadth of your approach that takes me to six lessons. But first of all, I was thinking about what's, what's the exam question in a crisis? I think the exam question, first of all, in a crisis is, it's about looking outside in. So it's a stakeholders test, or it's a public test, it's a customer test, it's a politician's test, wherever it comes from. So I think the question you're being asked in a crisis, when you're exposed and naked and the world's looking at you and your organisation, so a stakeholders sort of instinctive crisis test, no one actually asked this question specifically, but this is what I think they're driving at when you're under pressure. Do I believe that this organisation has competence a soul, and leaders who care, and that today, post-incident, they get it and they've got a plan. So the first half of that question is nothing to do with today, as in the day of the crisis. Do I believe the organisation has competence, a soul, and leaders who care? Today is perhaps a lens on them, but it's, it's, a, it's a more rounded assessment of the organisation. But of course, post-incident, do they actually get why we don't like this? Because that's not always what happens. And do they have a sensible plan? So for me, there's a balance between what you do the three, six, four days in the routine that sets you up for, the, for that day. To get a yes answer, I had six headlines that I would just quickly take us through. So I think the nurturing of the corporate soul, your values, that part of the organisation is critical. Because if you're going to be fully exposed, if those aren't right, you can't fix that with a sort of shiny comms plan. Secondly, as, as part of the routine, you need a diverse top team with a culture that is able to challenge, is constructive, is coherent and, and collegiate, but understands properly how the organisation works, isn't just about silo specialists. So you need a, a properly constructed, well-functioning team, because if they're not an A1 team, then under pressure, that's not going to succeed. The third thing in the routine is about that governance rigour supported by that constructive culture, because that's the way, through spotting risks and issues and threats, you systematically work your way through. And you never plan for every scenario, but you spot the worst-case scenarios and you come up with sensible plans for them. So there's a routine there about soul, about top, top team culture particularly, and about governance. Then in the situation itself, so of course, after the event, you need a well-controlled response. It needs to be practised and drilled and, uh, and tested. 
And in particular, you need to have thought about command structures, who's in charge. I saw some research where one of the big four, sorry, I can't remember which one it was, had done some research and it was a massive percentage of people in top teams in, in big organisations around the world. When asked the question, so who would be in charge if you faced a crisis in an organisation? There was uncertainty. Is it the chief executive? Is it the COO? Is it the head of legal? So if you don't know that answer to that question, then I mean, you're way, way off, the, way, way off the pace. So have you got the capabilities? Have you got the leadership? Have you got the comms right? There is, of course, the comms. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You have to be ready to lead the narrative internally, externally, conventional media, social media. And that takes a lot of prep. It's really difficult to go out there and stand out there when you know you know 5% of what you'd like to know because it's so early on in this situation and you know the world's watching you. And lastly, I think you need an attitude which is about embracing this really intense scrutiny. You're prepared to say, actually, that's our job. We're an organisation that's accountable to our customers, the public, to our stakeholders. This is a difficult time. We're going to embrace that scrutiny. doesn't mean it's fun. It's not fun. But you're going to, you're going to embrace it because that's what required of senior leaders. And it's your job in that situation to show your authenticity and what sort of organisation you are and what sort of leader you are. But it all comes back to that question. So that question that I think stakeholders are instinctively asking us, do I believe this organisation has competence, a soul and leaders who care? And that today, post-incident, they really get it and they have a plan. And if you start from that basis, then your preparation for crisis starts in the routine of how you run a good organisation, on top of which you build some plans for that extreme situation. You don't fall into crisis management being a niche subject for a few experts in risk management. And we've got a um, PR company on hand who will help us out of the crisis. So those are my reflections, having stood in the middle of the ring quite a lot. And I've enjoyed putting my thinking together, whether it's worthwhile or not. So I've enjoyed it whether you have or not, so that's fine. <laughs> it's been fantastic to have Mark here. I have to say that I'm probably the most insecure, neurotic non-exec on, on the uh, Metropolitan Police Management Board. Not at all. Uh, but um, I have to tell you, I took great comfort um, watching and observing Mark. He didn't know how closely he was being observed, but every time he left the room, it'd be like, oh, my God, what's going on? Uh, and he was probably just going for a loo break or, or uh, briefing the PM. It didn't matter, because every time he came back in, there was a kind of calm authority about him. But I'll let you get <laughs> off with that one. I think we should remember, uh, I hope we're going to hear a lot more about it as you decide what you're going to do next in your career, and I know you've got uh, very concrete plans. Do I believe this organisation has competence, a soul, and leaders who care? I think holds whether you're in crisis or not in crisis, and that today, post-incident, in crisis, they really get it and they have a plan. So I'd urge you to think about that, whether you do have those purposes in place, uh, whether you would pass those six kind of uh, hurdles that Mark has suggested, including... Uh, if we were to see your organisation naked, would we admire what we see? And with that, I think a huge, huge London Business School round of applause for Mark Rowley. Thank you very much. This was a London Business School Review podcast, bringing you fresh ideas and opinion from London Business School's experts. To listen and read more, visit www.london.edu forward slash LBSR.